Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Gruel, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show is episode number 52, featuring my conversation with author and former White House speechwriter, David Litt. David's new book, Democracy in One Book or Less, was released earlier this summer and humorously discusses the ways in which American government has changed since its founding. He also describes how we can work together to fix the problems in our democracy. Our conversation is a funny and illuminating guide to our government that I hope will leave you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. At the time of our recording, we are less than two months away from the 2020 United States presidential election. No one knows what the results will be, but in a deeply divided country, one thing is certain. No outcome will make everyone happy. Tensions are high, spirits are low, and many Americans are pessimistic about the future of our country. Today's guest, David Litt, knows these feelings all too well. While working in the Obama administration as a senior presidential speechwriter and special assistant to the president, David saw firsthand the dysfunction that exists in Washington. As a head joke writer for several of President Obama's White House Correspondents' Dinners, he poked fun at many of the quirks and problems that increasingly partisan politics has given rise to. When David left the White House in early 2016, he turned his talents towards the entertainment industry and became the head writer for Funny or Die's Washington, D.C. office. Later, David published his first book, the New York Times bestselling memoir, Thanks Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. David's new book, Democracy in One Book or Less takes a look at how the American system of government really works and how we can restore the balance of power before it's too late. As a comedian and student of history, David digs in deep to discuss what's really alien us politically and gets in a few laughs along the way. Our witty conversation covers many aspects of our democracy that David feels were glossed over in his history classroom. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with author David Litt. In the season of elections here in America, I am just thrilled that our guest today is a voracious reader, writer, author, humorist, and a New York Times best-selling author. His first book instantly rose to the top of the New York Times best-selling list, and Esquire magazine actually said it was one of 2017's best books. That's that's quite an accomplishment. And the title of that book is Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. And it's a memoir of our guest David Litt's uh, time as a beloved speechwriter in the Obama uh, administration. But his new sensation is fantastic. It is a page turner. You won't be able to put it down. And it is Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. So even if you are not a political aficionado, we assure you by the end of this podcast, you will be, because our guest is going to pierce the veil and give us an inside look on how politics works. So thank you for joining us, David. Thank you for having me. I want to go backwards to go forwards, and I love that your ascension to the White House actually started with you going to one of the most prestigious universities in America, Yale University, 
And while you were there, not only did you write for the school paper, but you were also in an improv group, which I think for anyone that loves improv keeps you on the tip of your toes. You are fast and furious. So can you talk about being at Yale University and those those two loves of yours, being a writer and also somebody who was great in improvisation? Well, it's interesting. When I went to Yale and, and before that, when I was in high school, I started off doing stand-up comedy. I think when I was like 15, I did stand-up comedy in New York where I grew up, just in uh, amateur nights and stuff. I was the weird, you know, ninth grader doing stand-up. And when I got to college, I joined an improv group. And I also, I didn't write for the paper, actually, because that was too serious for me. I wrote for a humor magazine there. And that was really what I was focused on doing. You know, um, I figured I would leave college and go to L.A. or New York and, and focus on comedy full time. And the summer after my junior year, I ended up uh, as an intern at The Onion, which is a satirical newspaper. I'm sure many of oh, your listeners know it. It's fantastic. Um, it's really funny. And I discovered I was not very good at writing Onion headlines, which are the kind of their bread and butter joke. And uh, I think this happens a lot where you look at something and you say, well, since it seems like I'm not that good at this, maybe it's not that important to me after all. And around that same time, um, not long after, I was on a plane and we were landing at JFK Airport in New York and the TV was on. This was in January and it was turned, I turned it to CNN, just kind of flipping through channels. and there was this Barack Obama guy giving a speech. It was the night of the Iowa caucuses, so the first election of the 2008 primaries, and he gave this victory speech. I knew a little bit about Obama before that, but not very much. And by the time that plane landed, the speech wasn't even over, but I was like, okay, whatever this guy is doing, I want to be part of that. And so that ended up being what I sort of switched everything and, and focused on not originally as a writer. Originally, I went to Ohio and I was a field organizer on the 2008 campaign. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. and more or less by accident, found a job at a speechwriting firm. And so I ended up uh, using some of that comedy writing background um, in speechwriting. This was not the plan. It just kind of happened that way. I like, I like to use the term accidentally on purpose. <laughs> I think that's true, but I would just say that was accidentally by accident in this particular case. Uh, I, I can't even take that much credit for it. I love that you had access to to be able to try certain things, whether it was improv or writing. So do you do you look back on those years of improvisation as being a tool to help you not only be a speechwriter, but I understand for years you were at Funny or Die. for. So can you tell our listeners how your comedy writing and your chops served you well at Funny or Die. So Funny or Die was a website that was founded originally by Will Ferrell. And it's a comedy website that does videos, but online. And it was really one of the first places to do online video focused purely on the internet, as opposed to saying, well, we'll do it you know, on TV, but then we'll put a clip of it on online or something like that. And when I was there, which was from 2016 to 2018, it was interesting because it was kind of marrying two different things that I've done in my life, one of which was around politics and public service and working with organizations that are trying to make the world better in one way or another. And the other was getting attention using humor. And so I found that humor 
even when the, you're talking about a serious issue, is just a really important tool for getting people's attention. And right now, with the internet being so big, and you know, there's a, a gazillion websites, and everybody has a podcast, and all of these different things. Um, if you can be funny, at least it gets you in the door. And that was something I noticed when I wrote speeches, and it was something certainly that I ended up thinking a lot about when I was at Funny or Die. And so definitely the improv background was helpful for that. And the other thing about improv comedy is you sort of, you have to ask this question, if that, then what else? That's kind of a, a border or a, a, a baseline rule of improv is you should always be asking yourself if that, if this, then what else? And that is really a helpful tool, I think, for any kind of writing, because, you know, when you hit that moment, when you're stuck, a lot of the time, what you just start to have to do is say, okay, we've gotten this far. What's next? What, you know, we, we've built this. How do we expand on it? And so to do that and to have to do it on your feet um, definitely helped me, you know, during moments when you're staring at a blank screen and uh, not really sure where it's headed. Well, I love that you've been dubbed as the comic muse of the president. And when you started as one of the speechwriters, you were the youngest or one of the youngest speechwriters in history at the ripe old age of 24. And I know that one of the first opportunities for you to actually write speeches was for Valerie Jarrett. So can you tell us what that was like to be this bright-eyed, enthusiastic speechwriter that had access to some of the most powerful people in the country? Well, I started writing for Valerie, who was President Obama's senior advisor um, all eight years he was in the White House. And she's also one of President Obama's closest friends and, and, and Michelle Obama's closest friends. So she knew Barack and Michelle Obama well before they were Barack and Michelle Obama, or at least the, the Barack and Michelle Obama most of us know today. And so it was a really special experience for all sorts of reasons. Um, but one of them was I got this interesting insight into the president and his administration from someone who knew him well before he was a, a major political figure in American politics. And also, you know, Valerie herself, I mean, she wrote a book, um, Finding My Voice, which came out after she left the White House. And it's full of just really interesting stories, but also kind of things she learned throughout her own life. So many of the things that I kind of tell young people when I'm giving very broad life advice come from, you know, commencement speeches that I would write for her with her. So what a lot of uh, folks probably miss most is what they call the State of the Union of Jokes, which is the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And and I understand that you wrote for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So can you can you talk about what that was like to sit down and craft the news of the day and hope that those jokes would land. Unlike most speeches in the Obama White House, the jokes were a team effort. So we would have, you know, I would write some stuff, but then we'd also have former speechwriters pitch ideas. We'd have a couple of professional comedians who would pitch ideas from Hollywood. Um, all sorts of different uh, people sending thoughts and jokes and lines. And my job was to both write some stuff myself and then also to curate things so that we came to the president with a list of things he might like. And one of the things I learned um, from that unsuccessful Onion internship that we talked about earlier was that the way to get good jokes is to get thousands of bad ones or hundreds of bad ones. And, not, and I don't mean like terrible. I just mean jokes that aren't quite right. So if I ended up having 13, 15 jokes in a given 
year, I would personally probably have written 200 or more to get to those 15. We would get, you know, 600, 700 jokes and cut that down to a list of about 40. And then I would bring that into the president along with usually the chief speechwriter and maybe a couple of other people to kind of form an audience. And he would read through them. And, you know, some of them he'd say, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. And some of them he'd say, I don't really get it. And you'd go through and make notes. And a few he would he would also point to something and say, you know, hey, this is good, but it, it could be a little sharper here. Or like, you know, how come we're not doing anything about this, this issue in the news? And you take all of that and you go back and you refine it. And, you know, the interesting thing about jokes is because they're they have to be so precise. If your language is off in a typical speech, no one will really notice unless it's way off. In a joke, if the words are, you know, flipped in the slightest way, or if a comma is in the wrong spot, that takes the joke from great to terrible. And so because of that, and because none of this was stuff that President Obama had ever said before, because you can't reuse the jokes, this was all something where he would meet with us, you know, pretty frequently, at least for a speech like that. It was maybe two, three, four meetings in the Oval Office before one of these monologues, whereas a typical speech, if it was something he'd addressed before many times, he might read it the night before and then make make a few notes. So it was a chance to kind of like get to to see the president in action and to interact with him a little bit as a writer, because he was a writer before he became a politician. And so it was fun to see that side of him. I mean, at the time it was terrifying, but in retrospect, it was fun. He has spectacular comedic timing as well. Yes, absolutely. I think what made President Barack Obama so brilliant was he was clearly an empath. And I think that we are missing that now. I think in in your time in Washington, D.C., you probably have met a lot of narcissists. And what is, what is that like to be surrounded by narcissists who are devoid of empathy, devoid of self-deprecation? So I would say it's it's interesting, actually. One of the things I have found is that most politicians I have met and worked with are they have egos. I mean, you you don't become a politician unless you have a big ego, but they tend to really care about stuff. Um, you know, this idea of politicians who just are purely transactional or purely narcissistic or driven entirely by ego, um, in my own opinion, that characterizes President Trump very well. It characterizes some other politicians very well, but it's one of the things to me that makes President Trump so different than past presidents. And I think it's important that we not lose sight of the fact that you have lots of politicians who are in politics for good reasons, um, because generally speaking, if people lose faith in the system, then people come through and say, well, everyone's terrible, so elect me. I'm terrible, too. Um, Along those lines, I think the question ultimately becomes, and I think this is true for politicians, but I also think it's true for most people who aspire to be sort of among the best at whatever it is they do. You have to have some level of ego to do it, but you can't only be driven by ego or A, you're not going to do it as well, and B, you're ultimately not going to do anything of real value. And so balancing that, being able to, on one hand, believe in yourself, and then on the other hand, use that self-confidence or that um, that sense of ambition on behalf of others, that's where the empathy that you're talking about, I think, really comes in and is so important. One of the things I learned watching President Obama was that 
he was the kind of person who noticed people. You know, the, we don't think about that. We talk about who who do you fight for in politics. But President Obama was much more basic than that. He noticed the least powerful person in the room. He was aware they were there. He would talk to them. You know, he wanted to know what they were up to. And that's very different than um, some politicians who will go immediately to the most powerful person in the room and ignore everybody else. And that carries through to what you do, because if you don't notice people, you can't work on their behalf. You don't see them. And, um, and I think that is something that, you know, is just so important in a, in a political leader. I think that your new book, which is fascinating, it's, it's a true page turner. You wrote it, I believe, for, for people who are vulnerable, who may not be a part of the system, and and you you illuminate a lot about politics in in a very reader friendly way. So what I'd love to do as we segue into your new book, it, it's about exposing some of the things that are currently happening that are broken. But you also have aspirations of how could we fix it? So I, I love that there is the problem, but there's also some real solutions. So I'd love to spend some time diving into politics. And I I think I want to start with your grandpa. One of the anecdotes in your book that I found the most humorous was about your grandfather running for office in high school. So can you tell our listeners about Grandpa Lit? Yes. So my grandpa, sometime in the 1940s, he ran for president of his high school in Brooklyn, uh, Abraham Lincoln High. And he used to tell me kind of war stories, campaign war stories about his high school presidential race as though he had run for president of the United States. I mean, this was like one of his go-to stories when, when he would talk to me. And I remember it very clearly because he used to, you know, he kind of had this would tell it the same way every time. And he'd say, well, you know, the election was coming up. I printed out all of these flyers and I put them all over the school and they all said, score a hit with Irv Lit," because I guess this was kind of the height of sloganeering in the 40s. He's very proud of his slogan. That would be like the I Like Ike era, right? Yes. This was actually, this was uh, predated I Like Ike by about eight years. So my grandfather was really a trailblazer <laughs> in that way. And uh, so score a hit with Irv Lit. And then he would say, well, then the, the, the next day, you won't believe what happened. I came into school and my opponent had taken down all of my flyers, score a hit with Irv Lit. And he put up flyers that said, take a shit with Irv Lit. And then he would kind of pause. And it's, uh, I think it's important to remember, and I, I try to make this clear in the book and what I tell the story since. My, my grandfather, you know, my grandfather on my mom's side was like a real storyteller. My grandfather on my dad's side, Irv Lit, was, he was a very serious guy, you know, very smart, but very just straight down the middle. But this was like a, an exception where you'd kind of see him like get lost in memory lane and then he'd just smile a little to himself and he'd say, you know, but then the election happened and everybody knew who I was. Take a shit with her lit. So I won. <laughs> and he was, he was so excited, you know, even 50 years later that he had won that race. Um, and, and I will say the reason I talk about it in the book is to point out that, you know, you had, you had originally, you'd mentioned a couple of minutes ago, this idea of, even if you don't think you care about politics, um, or you don't, that's not something you're engaged with in many ways, democracy, even at a national level, even on the level of the most powerful country on earth comes down to how do we make choices together? How do we decide who leads us? And so we function in democracies, all sorts of, all sorts of ways, all sorts of times. 
um, it's harder and harder to do it at a national level rather than the level of a high school or rather than, you know, a bunch of friends deciding where they're going to go to dinner back when that was a thing that a bunch of friends could get together and decide to do. But there's um, this idea, I think, is very important that government matters and it is big and important, but it's rooted in these basic personal experiences and these questions that we ask ourselves every day. What I love, the timing of your book was, it came out in June, and it came out in the midst of a cultural revolution uh, where people are really looking at voice and and civil rights. And, and as we go into an election, it must be really exciting because you tackle these really tough issues that you you put a personal spin on. But I loved when you talked about Schoolhouse Rock. So for the folks that were not born and raised in America that got to watch Schoolhouse Rock on their local PBS station, tell our listeners abroad what Schoolhouse Rock meant to every single child. Schoolhouse Rock, back at least when I was a kid, which was 33, roughly 33 years ago, Schoolhouse Rock was, um, you know, this after series of after-school specials. My grandparents, not Irv Litt, the other side, had a copy on VHS, so I used to watch the tapes of it. And the one that always stuck with me was this uh, I'm Just a Bill. So it was a cartoon bill, a little piece of legislation, and he's sitting on the steps of the United States Capitol building, and he's singing to his friend, who's a boy, must be about 10 years old. Uh, It's unclear how they became friends, but he's singing to this kid about how he hopes to become a law someday, and he goes through the legislative process, right? Here's how a bill becomes a law. And, you know, I knew all the words to that song, but I also feel like even as a kid, what I understood about that and what felt so inspiring about that was this idea that if we, the people have an idea, if we, if there's something we want, we can turn it into a bill. And then there is a process by which we can turn that bill into a law. And so ultimately we rule over ourselves. We don't have a ruler telling us what to do. And the thing that really got me focused on this book that got me excited to write this book, but also made me feel like it was so urgent was the sense that we're slipping away from that model in the United States. And frankly, in many other countries around the world, democracies are seeming less representative of what their people want. And I wanted to look mostly in in the U.S. about why that really is and why is it that the sort of path where the people have an idea and one day it can become a law that was described in the song in Schoolhouse Rock, you know, why doesn't that happen anymore? And I, I realized I didn't know the answer. So I started, I set out to figure it out for myself and then to write about it so that other people would know. What you did in your book that I thought was really respectful to gender parity is in Schoolhouse Rock, it is a bill. I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. And you named her Belle in your book, which I thought was really a sweet nod in this age of Kamala Harris now being on the ticket. Thank thank you for for giving us some gender equity in your book. So we won't make you sing, but I just wanted to give you a nod (laughs) that I, as a reader, appreciated. Yes. And I also didn't have to rhyme anything with Capitol Hill. So it was extra easy to go from Bill the Bill to Bell the Bill. I love that. So there's a few terms that I think a lot of young people and folks in other countries have not heard of and do not understand. And... They're terrifying in concept. So I'd like to talk about gerrymandering. For those that have no concept what gerrymandering is, it has really changed the landscape of elections. So can you 
in in a a nod to Schoolhouse Rock, what would what would be an easy way to describe that to someone who's unfamiliar with it? So the the heart of gerrymandering is this basic question of if you're going to have people represent you, and people are going to represent places, which places are they going to represent? And one answer is to have people represent states, which we do in the United States. But then we carve up those states into districts. So if you live in the U.S., you have your senator who represents your state, but you also have your congressperson who represents a district that you're from. And then the question, of course, becomes, once you're going to carve up states into districts, who does the carving? And in many American states, the answer is that politicians carve up districts that they then run in. And it's not hard to see why that might create some conflicts of interest. So gerrymandering is what happens when politicians are carving up districts, not because they want to create, make them fair or because they want to make sure that every voter's voice is heard as much as possible, but because they want to make it easier for their party to win. And for a variety of reasons, including the fact that new technologies make that a lot simpler than it used to be, the effect of partisan gerrymandering is much, much greater than it's been at any point in our lifetimes. And so the, um, and, and one of the things I focus on in the book, you know, there's a, a lot of, you hear when, when people talk about gerrymandering, they say politicians shouldn't choose their voters, it should be the other way around. Voters should choose the politicians. And that is totally true. But another way to look at gerrymandering is, in theory, what we want in an election is for us to choose. Um, and, and not just for us to choose our voters, but for us to, our voices to matter, our opinions to matter. So if you are representing me in Congress or my local legislature, and I don't think you're go- doing a good job, I should be able to get together with the rest of the people and fire you and replace you with someone who I think will do better work on our behalf. Gerrymandering is about taking that ability away from voters. So drawing districts in ways that say, no matter how bad a job I do, no matter what, I, you know, how I behave, you're never really going to be able to cast a vote that's meaningful, that's going to change who controls Congress. Now, that's not, it's not possible to gerrymander districts to make it truly impossible to control, to, to determine who controls Congress. But what you can do is weaken people's votes and make it harder to say, well, you know, even if 51% of you, even if a majority of you believe that this party should be in charge, the other party's in charge. Um, And that sort of threatens the idea at the heart of democracy, which is that we make decisions by majorities. Staying in power is also another, it segues to this concept of a filibuster. And so a lot of young people don't know what a filibuster is. And these, um, these terms are often put to use when people are trying to remain in power or to stop either Bill or Bell becoming that law. So can you tell us about what a filibuster is? A filibuster, interestingly, has gone through all sorts of different meanings throughout American history. So actually, the first filibusterers, the the flibustiers, who were French, and the filibusteros, who were Spanish, they were pirates on the high seas, and they were, you know, hijacking ships and robbing people and all of that. The term got taken and used for legislation because what a filibuster is doing in a legislative context is rather than having a vote on a bill or a bell, because you know that your side is going to lose that vote, you don't have a majority of people who agree with you, 
you hijack the legislative process and you keep there from being any vote at all. Um, and in the Senate in particular, in the, in the United States Senate, that's always been very easy to do. Um, ever since 1837 for, for reasons I get into in the bill in the, in the book, rather, um, you don't need a majority to pass a law. Um, and some, at one time you could, uh, kill a bill with just a couple of people. And then it was kind of, um, was changed so that you could kill a bill with, you know, a few dozen people. And now the rule is you need 41 votes. And if you have 40 or 41 people to join this filibuster out of a hundred, and so just 41% of the Senate can end the chances of a bill becoming a law, even if 59% of the Senate supports that bill. And one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is that in politics, because parties are pretty evenly matched, because they're both kind of big national organizations, they're very well funded, it's really hard to get to 60 Senate votes in the United States Senate. That almost never happens. Uh, my entire life, you know, which is next month, 34 years, um, there's only been six months where either party has ever held 60 votes in the Senate. So the the filibuster has existed for a long time, but this new version of it, the 60-vote rule, has really ground the Senate to a halt where they don't really vote on any legislation anymore. Mm. This year, I think that that young people especially are are eager to to make rights out of wrongs and a lot of that goes back to some iconic civil rights icons the the freedom writers themselves were named in honor of the freedom writers from the 1960s uh, john lewis specifically being our namesake and so when you think about voter suppression in in pre-civil rights and the voter suppression that is happening now in 2020, it's terrifying that we have evolved and yet we are also going backwards. So can you talk about the the fear that so many people have about voter suppression? So when I was in high school and college, you know, American history was my favorite class. I majored in history and, and focused on um, America. And despite all of that, I think I learned the wrong version of history when it came to voting rights in the United States. The version of history I learned isn't wrong, but it's oversimplified, I guess, where when we started as a country, we really severely limited who could vote, um, not just in most cases to white men, but also to white men who owned some property. And over time, we expanded the franchise, the vote, to more and more people until we got to where we are today. And I think implicit in that was the idea that where we are now is the best we've ever been. It turns out that disenfranchisement, taking the vote away from people, is also part of American history. And that's not the part that I learned. I didn't learn this parallel history. So at times in United States history, People have been allowed to vote, and either by taking voting rights away and making it illegal for them to vote, or by taking the ability to vote away so that you can't exercise your rights, even if you technically have them, we've limited who can actually cast a ballot and therefore who can hold politicians accountable and who's represented in our country. And the last 40 years, but particularly the last 10 years, have been this period of really tremendous backsliding, where, for example, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was first elected president, about 3% of Americans could not legally vote. American adults could, had no voting rights at all. They could; It would be illegal for them to cast a ballot. 
When Donald Trump won his first election in 2016, that number had gone up to about 9%. So almost three times as many Americans had lost their voting rights. And that's not even counting millions and millions of Americans who are disproportionately black or brown Americans, disproportionately younger, disproportionately lower income, who had had their voting rights attacked so that they didn't necessarily lose their voting right in theory, but in practice, it was made much, much more difficult to cast a vote. And one of the things that I think you you mentioned, John Lewis, and I think it's really important and something he talked about throughout his life was that the rights that he fought for and almost died for, he didn't win those rights in 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. He, he won an enormous victory, but those rights are always under attack and they always have to be defended and expanded. And so, you know, especially as we're talking now, which is just uh, a few weeks after his passing, um, that becomes our job. And and that's what it means to live in a democracy is not, you know, you don't get handed something and, and you get to enjoy it. You have to protect it. One of the interesting angles you have in your book, uh, Democracy One, Book or Less, is the ability to imagine fixing. And when you looked at the exact match predicament that's now in certain states, specifically Georgia, I believe 53,000 votes were thrown aside because of signatures having variances, or they weren't, you know, if they had a, a middle initial. And there was a lot of speculation that potentially in, in certain communities, if there was discrimination against someone's name, if there was discrimination about keeping those voters from actually voting. So you actually gave a solution to what you think could happen with exact maps. So can you talk about what happened in Georgia specifically, because it was so outlandish, and about your solution? So this is a little complicated, so bear with me, but but there's going to be two solutions here and, and two problems. Um, what happened in Georgia was something called an exact match registration system. And the way that that worked was they said, we're going to take your application to register to vote. So normally you think about registering to vote in the United States. And by the way, your listeners in other countries may be very surprised by this because in most other democracies, you don't have to register to vote in the way you do in the US. Right? You're, you, the government gets you signed up. In the United States, it's on you and on political parties to get you signed up. And that's one of the ways we keep people from voting. Now, it, the registration process in Georgia said, if your information doesn't perfectly match information on an existing government database, then we will put your registration application on hold. We'll make it harder for you to we'll, we'll basically say we'll suspend your registration and, and you know, um, unless you do something to fix the problem, we won't get you registered. Now think about what that means in practice, because the volunteers who are entering that information are generally speaking, they were tended to be white, tended to be a little older. So the way I put it in the book is, you know, the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons, Matt Ryan, they probably entered his name right. But his running back, I think it was running back colleague, Takaris McKinley, that's a name that those volunteers were probably less familiar with. And then they were much more likely to get that name wrong. And so through no fault of his own, somebody with a quote-unquote more complicated name, at least a less familiar name to the volunteers, might be disenfranchised by that. Now, to talk about solution, oh, and I should also say, also women who have changed their name when they got married. Um, if the government database has your maiden name and you sign out, sign up to register under your uh, married name, then you would get 
your registration put on hold. So it was also something that ended up targeting women. So all of that is to say this was um, – there was no good reason for doing this. It didn't protect the election anyway. Thankfully, there was a public outcry over it, and Georgia actually rescinded that, that plan, and they changed their system so that, that it, they're still doing a lot of things wrong, but that is one thing that they are not doing in the same way they did in 2018. So that's one solution is just paying attention to this stuff, understanding how our system of government is really working and taking it upon ourselves to, to feel a sense of urgency and in many cases outrage when politicians are manipulating that system to benefit themselves or their parties. Now, um, oh, go ahead, oh, go ahead. No, because I know this is a long- No, I, this is perfect. Yeah, Continue. I, I promise I'm not filibustering, but the- the other thing you mentioned, and I'll try to be quicker about this one, was exact match, signature matching on votes. And this is happening in a lot of states. It's an issue in the United States this year because a lot more people are going to vote by mail because of COVID. And that's a system where, where an election official takes a look at your signature on an absentee ballot and then another signature, usually on your registration form or maybe the outside envelope that you use to mail in your ballot. And if that official decides that those two signatures don't match, then they get thrown out and your vote gets thrown out. Now, I talked to some experts who said a forensic analyst in a criminal case or a lawsuit would never be allowed to just compare two signatures to decide if someone's the same person or not. I mean, it's total malpractice. But these laws allow people to do that. And again, this tends to particularly target younger voters who didn't grow up writing cursive. In some cases, it targets voters who didn't learn English as a first language, English as a second language speakers. and what that does is potentially invalidates all these votes and people don't know about it. But to talk about solutions here, I think there's a really important point that right now in American elections, we often have a standard of guilty until proven innocent. We assume that your ballot doesn't count unless you do all everything right and prove with beyond any sort of doubt that your ballot does count. Well, it turns out there's almost no election fraud taking place, voter fraud taking place. Um, so a much better way to do it is to assume that ballots are innocent until proven guilty. Assume that a ballot is valid and then go through a checklist and see if you can prove that it's not. And that's what a state like Colorado does. So this isn't just theoretical. Colorado has what they call a substantial match standard. So as long as an election official looks at a signature and says, yeah, these look pretty similar, you know, there's no reason to think they're totally different, then they're required to keep that vote intact. And that's a much better standard because it doesn't allow people to be blatantly fraudulent or anything like that, but it also keeps eligible voters from having their votes tossed out. And I should just say, as somebody who signed, you know, a lot of books, uh, not not in this new book because it, ha it came out during the pandemic, so, you know, the, I, all my book tour has been on Zoom, but as somebody who signed a lot of books when Thanks Obama came out, I might meet a substantial match signature threshold, but there's no way I would meet an exact match threshold. I think there's a lot of people who are in the same kind of situation. Another thing you brought up in your book that I thought was fascinating that folks in other countries may not understand is our campaign finance laws, that some of the, the wealthiest folks can pour millions of dollars into a singular candidate. So can you talk about traditionally, I think you wrote that about the average household may spend $50, hypothetically, for a candidate, but an individual with great wealth can spend millions, and how that can really tilt the scales. 
One of the things to think about as we think about the role of money in politics is that money has always been involved in politics in some way or another and always will be. The example I use in the book is that George Washington, the father of our country, in the 1750s, he was running for a seat in his colonial legislature and he wanted to win. So what did he do? He had a big party at his house and he bought a ton of free booze and he invited all the voters over for this little legislative district and they all got drunk on his dime and he won very handily. And then the Virginia legislature very quickly tried to outlaw that practice since it seems so blatantly unfair. And so we've seen this cat and mouse game between people who would like to use their money to win elections and people who would like to prevent corruption by keeping that from happening. And that's been true throughout American history. What has changed in 2010 was the Supreme Court decision called Citizens United. And Citizens United is complicated in the way many Supreme Court decisions are, but it's also kind of simple. Essentially, what it did was say that if you have a lot of money, you can spend as much money as you want on politics. There's no real limit to how much you can spend on politics. There are a few small ways in which there, there are still limits, but basically you can you can spend, you know, if you have a billion dollars, you can spend a billion dollars. If you have two billion dollars, you can spend two billion dollars. And what that has done at a moment of really rising income inequality is translated that directly into political inequality. So that now, if I have, um, you know, let's say I'm, uh, right, Sheldon Adelson, who's a casino billionaire in Las Vegas. If I have, I think he had $33 billion when I wrote the book. If I have $33 billion, that gives me essentially in direct proportion to my wealth, more power than the average American family, you know, that has however much in the bank. It's definitely not $33 billion. And the other thing that it does, which creates this kind of strange incentive, is if you just think about this as a percentage of your net worth, for Sheldon Adelson to spend $20 million on a candidate, which is what he did for Newt Gingrich's primary camp presidential campaign in 2012, um, that's about the financial commitment of a typical family of four in America going to Olive Garden, right? having a kind of fast casual meal in their local restaurant. And so for most of us, who gets $20 million to run their presidential campaign is a really big deal. But for somebody who's extraordinarily wealthy, it's something you might not even think about. You might write that check and then, you know, you'd notice the money's gone, but you might not, you wouldn't be thinking about it a year later. Mm. There's a couple other subjects that just I find fascinating. And it's times like this that I really miss John Stewart because I, I love when John Stewart would take on Mitch McConnell, but you have picked up the mantle and you take on Mitch McConnell. So can you talk about, for the those that are not in America and they don't know that he is the majority leader of the Senate, can you talk a little bit about your expose on Mitch? Mitch McConnell is the senior senator from Kentucky. He's been in the Senate for Kentucky since 1984, so two years before I was born. And early on in his life, he didn't want to be a politician. He wanted to be a baseball player. He was a, an all-star pitcher um, when he was in middle school. And then his family moved to Kentucky from Georgia. And he got cut from the varsity squad when he was in 10th grade. Um, actually, I think he got cut from the team altogether. And he writes in his memoir that he sort of lost his dreams of becoming a big league baseball player but picked up this new dream of a sort of similar contest that you know involved teamwork and competitiveness and 
it was called politics. And then <laughs> so from then on, he's been running for office in all sorts of different ways. He was his, uh, like my grandfather, he was his high school student body president, but then he went on to be his college student body president. And then he's been running and running and running. And then he became a senator in 1984. And now he's the majority leader, which means basically that he is the most powerful person in the Senate. The thing that Mitch McConnell has understood that I think most American politicians did not fully understand, and certainly most Americans did not fully understand, was that while politics, like baseball, can be a contest between two sides, in politics, the players write the rules. So while many of us in politics focus on the players on the field, who's voting on what issue, what did this person say in a speech, all of, you know, who's teaming up with whom to sponsor what bill... Mitch McConnell was sitting on the side, you know, kind of behind the scenes, thinking about how to rewrite the rules. And in nearly every case, what he has done, and, and you know, I think I, I think of him as kind of the leader of a movement. It's not just purely him. What Mitch McConnell and his team have done is change the rules, not to make it impossible for the other side to win, but to make it much, much harder for the other side to win. And what that means is it it gets at this fundamental um, connection, this fundamental pillar of democracy, which is that there's a link between power and accountability. You don't just have power. Ultimately, we the people have power. Well, McConnellism is about taking that away so that people have power that is not actually deriving from the consent of the governed, from a majority of people supporting them, but in other ways, whether it's, as we've discussed, somebody with many billions of dollars supporting you, or whether it's because you have this ability to filibuster even if you don't hold a popular position, or all these other things that we've talked about. And so that link between power and ac accountability, that idea that we are a country, as L Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, and for the people, um, that I think is uh, almost has been the collateral damage in this attempt to make it easier for Mitch McConnell's party to win, democracy itself ends up at risk. It must have been maddening for you when the Supreme Court pick Merrick Garland was withheld. How, how did that feel with this candidate that you all rallied behind and it never even got to the Senate floor for a vote? I remember reading that story. And I, I, to me, the surprising thing about that was how surprised everybody was. And for those of you who, who either don't remember or just need a refresher, um, uh, Antonin Scalia, who was a conservative Supreme Court justice, passed away kind of suddenly. Um, according to the Constitution, the president has a right to pick the person who will replace him. President Obama knew that it was near the end of his term, so he tried to pick someone who was about as middle of the road as you can get, uh, Merrick Garland. I mean, you know, he would be considered a liberal, but the kind of most centrist, moderate liberal. And this is important in the Supreme Court, also a lot older. So Merrick Garland, I believe, was in his 60s when Obama picked him, which meant that, you know, presumably uh, there would be another chance to fill that seat sooner than if he'd picked someone in his 40s or 50s. So went to really great lengths to try to make this work for everybody. And what Mitch McConnell said is not only will we not do our constitutionally mandated job, which is to advise and provide advice and consent on a pick and vote on this person and, you know, decide whether or not they should serve on the court, we won't even hold a hearing on it. So we're just going to shut it down. In a mirror to the filibuster, he was saying not, not that we will vote against this because it would pass. He was saying we won't even vote. And it worked. So they they held they withheld the nomination and, the, and wouldn't vote on it or even hold a hearing on it. And then when President Trump won the election and took office, he nominated his own pick and Mitch McConnell and his party rammed him through. And 
the thing to me about that was I remember hearing from people who said, oh, I can't believe that happened. And I kind of had this moment of, well, where were you the last, you know, eight years? Because the, the central tenet, um, for, uh, unfortunately for a lot of politicians. And I think that defines the Republican party in the United States these days is how do we use the rules to get as much power as possible? And so uh, if, if, if it's something that people feel they can get away with, they tend to do it now. And that's a very dangerous thing for democracy because democracy to a large extent, um, is held together by self-restraint. This idea that politicians could push the envelope, but they won't. And so now we have to figure out how to reestablish democracy in a world where that's clearly not true. Some politicians will do whatever they think they can get away with. The last question I want to ask you about politics is about the electoral college. You know, there's people who turn in every election, and there's the popular vote and the electoral college. And I know a lot of people that don't live inside the confines of America. Those that actually do live here, some don't understand that as well. Can you talk about the difference between the popular vote and the electoral vote and how that affected this last election uh, with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and what will happen going forward with Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So the Electoral College is a system, rather than have the election all be held at once, we have a kind of two-step system of presidential elections in the United States. So every state gets a certain number of electors and that number equals its number of representatives, which is at least two per state, or sorry, at least one per state, and its number of senators, which is two for every state. So every state gets at least three electors, and at the moment, the largest state, California, gets 55. And then each of those states hold their own elections, and the winner of each state, the electors, go to the candidate who wins the state, and then you add it all up, and whoever gets the most electoral votes wins. Now, most of the time throughout American history, that is the same thing as saying whoever gets the most votes around the country wins the election. But on a few occasions, we have come down to an election where the popular vote, most people choose one person to be president, and most of the electoral votes end up going to someone else. That's what happened in 2016 by one of the largest margins, I think in the last or at least 150 years, is that uh, President Trump lost the election. He lost the popular vote by a little bit more than 2%, I think, or at least around 2%. And he won the electoral college by a pretty significant margin. And one of the things about that is it does not really comport with the way that most Americans think about democracy. I mean, if you look at polling, most Americans would like to get rid of the electoral college. I'm certainly one of them. And the reason for that is on a very basic level, it goes back to my grandfather, Irvlet, and his race for student body president. You don't have to, you know, if you say, oh, well, you ran for student body president, you got the most votes, but you didn't win, there would be an outcry. And yet that's how we decide who's the president of the United States. And it's important here to note the Electoral College doesn't actually favor one party over the other. A lot of the time, things I write about in the book really do favor one party long term. Um, in 2012, President Obama actually could have lost the popular vote and he would have won the Electoral College. Now, he won the popular vote anyway, so it didn't come up that way. But the Electoral College is pretty random. All it does is create this kind of undemocratic possibility in the middle of an otherwise democratic process, which is one reason why Richard Nixon, who was a Republican president, wanted to get rid of the Electoral College, and Jimmy Carter, who was a Democratic president, wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. 
this used to be a relatively bipartisan idea, um, even if it didn't quite get through. And now, unfortunately, what we're seeing is as Republicans become convinced, wrongly in my view, that the Electoral College will benefit them forever, they've decided it's a matter of principle to keep it. Um, I, I suspect that if the Electoral College ever flips back and starts to benefit Democrats, you're going to see Republicans say, oh, no, actually, as a matter of principle, we have to get rid of it. But that's politics. I think a lot of people realize that this election is so important when it comes to future Supreme Court nominees, some some legislation that may or may not continue in the future. What can you tell young people about the urgency and the importance of this election? Well, I think one of the things that you see, and this, this goes to the sort of heart of our two-party system, because in some other countries, they have a parliamentary system where you have lots of different parties and you just vote for whoever you like the most, and you don't have to worry about wasting your vote. In the United States, for better or for worse, um, we have a system where if you don't vote for your for somebody who's going to finish in the top two, you've wasted your vote. And so what you see, and by the way, that's true almost everywhere. States like Maine, which just adopted something called ranked choice voting, and I go into all the details of it in the book, they've created a way where you can vote for your top choice. And then you can also ensure that your vote will count, even if your top choice only gets a few votes. However, in the rest of the country, what we're seeing is attempts to um, exploit the fact that it's easy for voters to waste their votes. What you see in this case is supporters of President Trump who are working to put Kanye West on the ballot. And what I think is a very condescending view that black voters will automatically support Kanye West for president. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of his albums, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to support him for president. And by the way, you could put a white singer on the ballot and I would not just vote for them because I'm a white person. But that seems to be the the theory of the case is that if you put a famous person on the on the ballot as a third party candidate, people will go vote for him, not realizing that they're, they'll waste their vote. I would love to see more states do what Maine is doing and adopt ranked choice voting so that you can vote for your top candidate first, and then you can still make sure your vote counts. But the way that the American system functions right now, it requires voters to uh, treat voting as an as a strategic act, not just purely as one that is about picking your favorite person. Um, and I think that's, by the way, it's, you know, it, it's part of what um, we should change. You know, I'd love to see a system where you can vote for your favorite person and also not have to worry about your votes being wasted. I don't think that Kanye West would be my favorite candidate, even if we had ranked choice voting. Um, but that said, more broadly, uh, I think that would be a um, helpful change to the system and one we're definitely not going to see before 2020. So realistically, voters are going to have two real choices. I love that you started out as an optimist when you were in high school and college and joined the presidential campaign very early. And I think now you're more of a realist. And so as a realist, if if a high school student is listening, some of the things that you did in your book were like a call to action for, for young people to get involved, to volunteer, to, to go to their polling booths. I think you even suggested that they should get the day off. And we won't know what's going to happen with the pandemic and, and COVID-19. But as a realist, how could you inspire people to still be optimistic? Well, I think even now in 2020, realism and optimism are not um, at odds with each other necessarily. Um, and I think that the being optimistic 
to bring this back to my old boss, President Obama, one of the things I admire about him is when something new came up, a new technology, a new trend, his first thought was, how can this help? How can this be part of the change that we want to see in the world? Um, it doesn't mean that it was all good news, but it meant that he was always looking for the possibility of something good. And I would say, thinking about realistically where American democracy is right now, um, to me, the ultimate question in democracy is not, is everything going well, which it certainly is not in America today. I think that's pretty objective if you look at what is happening with the pandemic and the economy and all the rest. Um, but to me, the real question is, are we able to fix it? Can we change ourselves or do we have we lost the power to decide the direction of our own country? And despite everything that we've talked about and all the other things I wrote about in this book and all the other things that are happening every single day, I think we still have that power. And one of the things you know I point out in the book is at the time I was writing it, we were seeing pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. We were seeing them in Lebanon, in Iran, um, Chile. It was a reminder that people would literally risk their lives, and in some cases they gave their lives, for a chance to live in a democracy as flawed as the one America has today. So unlike John Lewis, who had to put his life on the line to vote, you know, it's possible that, that that's where we will be in November. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, we saw that with the Black Lives Matter protests earlier this year, where people really were putting their bodies on the line. But it seems to me like it is not, um, the most likely possibility is that we don't need to risk literally everything in order to protect our democracy, which is what many generations before us had to do. We have to participate. And you know, especially if you're a student listening to this, I would point to a couple of different things. One is that you might be too young to vote, but that you're not too young to volunteer, um, whether that's calling voters in a phone bank, um, correcting misinformation you see online, and getting actual facts out there about how to vote, how to register, when the deadlines are, how to vote by mail, all of these things. Um, you can volunteer in many states. You can volunteer to be a poll worker. And that's particularly important if you're at lower risk for COVID because more than half of our poll workers in America are 60 years old or more. So a lot of those people are not going to work the polls this year because very understandably, they're worried about the virus. If you're in high school and it's safe for you um, or safer for you, this is a potential moment to volunteer to work the polls. And you don't just see how our democracy works in action, but you also might fill the spot of someone who can't participate this year. Um, so I think there's all sorts of ways to get involved and stay involved. And one of the things that really inspires me is that I imagine that a lot of young people or younger people listening to me say this are going to say, yeah, of course, that's what we've been doing all along. I mean, I think one of the things that I, you know, I am uh, by most definitions still a young person, but I'm old enough to see what high schoolers are doing or what college kids are doing and be really inspired by the fact that despite living through some really difficult times in American history and despite all of the threats that we face and our democracy faces, people aren't giving up. Instead, they're doubling down and saying, this is worth fighting for. We know how fragile this is, but that makes us want to protect it. I'm so grateful to our guest, David Litt, for his fiercely intelligent and funny take on the current state of politics. My dear listeners, May each of us strive to make our democracy more equitable. May we exercise our democratic duty and vote this November. And as our guest David Litz so eloquently says, may we all unite together to restore the promise of American democracy. That concludes our show this week. 
Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Aaron Gruwell. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Martin-Hall and Rob Falk. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told.